0: Please open your Bibles to the book of James. We find ourselves at the end of verse 6 in chapter 3, and we will work our way through that verse and lay the foundation for what is to come. Let's read verse 6 together. And the tongue is a fire... It is a restless evil full of deadly poison thus far. May the Lord bless His word. Last week we started looking at the beginning of verse 6. And this morning I'll continue to wrap that verse up. And I pointed out that there are two declarative statements in verse 6. It's pretty easy to see. Both of them begin with the words and the tongue or the tongue. So if you look at verse 6 again, it says, the tongue is a fire. And in the middle of verse 6, it says, the tongue is set among our members. Those are the two, quote-unquote, declarative statements. It tells us that these two are, if you do your line diagramming, they are set off in the outer part of your sentence. And beneath that, you have your explanatory clauses, those things which define and explain a little bit more what the tongue is. So in the first uh, part we saw that the tongue is defined and explained by a world of unrighteousness. That was last week. And we looked at the representative quality of the tongue as it reveals a world that stands opposed to God. Secondly, this morning, we will look at the tongue that is explained by its staining power, setting on fire power, and being set on fire uh, power. And we will look at those three this morning. So as we continue, James points out the issue of the heart. And I've tried to make this point in a variety of different ways. When he uses the tongue, he's in fact talking about not the organ per se, but what the tongue represents, which is the heart. And I think this morning should kind of make that point a little bit more clearer. However, there are three descriptive terms or three descriptions, which are pretty vivid pictures of the wickedness of man's heart. James in a sense, speaks about the revelatory nature of the tongue. The tongue tells us something about who you are. The tongue reveals something about the way we think. Now the opposite is true as well. If the tongue is redeemed, then it stands to reason that the way we speak will reveal a quality and character about our hearts as well. We will have redeemed words, words seasoned with grace. We will have a changed tongue and it will manifest that our hearts have been changed in the way that we treat one another by the use of our tongue. However, the unfortunate reality is that not many of us think about how we use our tongues. It is the last thing we think about. We always focus on the actions that people do uh, or the actions that people can see, uh, the way that I act the way that I uh, do things in church, we focus on those external things, and yet the smallest member of our body, which is the tongue, is neglected. Yet it has the greater capacity to do much harm. Unfortunately, like in Jesus' time, today the saying is true. People worship Jesus by means of their lips, but their hearts are far from Him. The most dangerous condition to be in is to be a person deceived by false worship. James actually deals with that. Chapter 1 verse 27. A religion that is false is a guy that has deceived his heart to think that he's able to put on the display of worship for others to see. Yet in his heart, he cannot bridle his tongue. James says that person's worship, those acts of worship, which is translated as religion, is worthless. That is the most dangerous position to be in. When you are engaged in acts of worship, but in fact your heart is far from God. The unbridled tongue speaks of an uncontained heart. A heart that has not been changed by God's grace. That is the weight of the measure of the tongue. A tongue that is self-deceived is a tongue that has no true worship of God. Remember, the point of this book is to demonstrate faith that works. The undercurrent of that theme, the major theme which is faith that works, is wisdom. How wisdom manifests itself through faith that works works. Faith endures in trials. Chapter 1. Faith responds in obedience. Chapter 1. Faith shows no partiality. Chapter 2. Faith uh, is demonstrated in faithful obedience in how it relates to God's people. Chapter 2. Faith is evident on our tongues. Chapter 3. True faith is manifest in how we speak. James masterfully shows that the wickedness of our hearts is made manifest in a fiery demonstration of the tongue. I have so exasperated that um, point. I hope not to return to it again. I think you get the idea. James is describing that the tongue is the most Horrendous possible way that we can manifest our hearts. If you have a tongue that is as dangerous as a wildfire, then you have no place in the pulpit of God. If you can't control your tongue, which means you have an uncontrolled heart, you do not belong in a position of teaching. If there's any place that can cause damage in people's lives, it is the position of teaching. So James wants him to understand that their tongues say a lot about themselves. And so he warns them away from teaching by revealing the nature of their hearts. Now the last part of us three, which is the focus of our sermon. These three descriptions the intensify in Essence. They intensify in description. They reveal that the tongue stains, the tongue burns, and the tongue is set aflame by something else. Now, it's conveniently written in such a way, or translated in such a way, that it starts with three s's, so you can't miss it. If you look at verse six, it says, in "The middle of a six, the tongue stains or staining the whole uh, body, set on fire, and then is set on fire by." Uh, hell itself. So those three S's are the three points that I will cover this morning. The staining power of the tongue, the setting aflame uh, of, of one's world, um, and then being set on fire by uh, um, hell. These All these three are verbals. They are verbal in nature, but have a different function. So I just call them verbals. They are not verbs, but verbals. And we can speak about that on Wednesday. So they show activity. There's implicit activity in these words. And you can kind of get it from the words itself. Staining, active way of doing something. Setting on fire, a little bit more passive. And then being set on on fire is definitely uh, uh, passive. What James is after is to tell us and to show us what the tongue does. He's highlighting activity or is caused to do. Still activity. So let's give attention to these three elements. The staining power of the tongue. Now before I get to that, notice what it says right in the middle of verse six. This is often missed because we kind of glance over it. It says, the tongue is set among our members. That's a strange way to speak about the tongue. The word literally means to be put in place. You know when you take your child, when they are being disobedient and you pick him up and you just put him down. And what do you say? Stay. Now I know we often use that of dogs, but it works on kids as well. So stay. And what are they supposed to do? They are put in place for a specific reason. They're supposed to remain there. Now if you're like my kids, they wiggle and worm out of that position very quickly. But the whole point is, is that Staying power, putting in place power, that is the idea. It does not, however, place itself. It is placed in position. That is two different things. If the tongue places itself, then the tongue is causing itself to do the thing. But if the tongue is being put in a position, then the tongue is caused to do a certain thing. So then the question logically comes well, who placed the tongue in the members of our body? obvious right god you didn't put your tongue in your mouth god did so god places the tongue in the members of our body why look at the text the tongue is set among our members or placed in our members of our body set in amongst the members of our body staining the whole body so from this point on when we get to staining we are now explaining what the setting in place actually means. So what James is doing, he's saying that this is why the tongue has been placed among your members. To stain you. Now that may sound strange. Why does God put the tongue in the body to stain us? Well, it's not the way that we think the word staining is being used here. The tongue stains, firstly. So let's look. Uh, at the first of these three descriptive terms. The staining power of the tongue. It tells us that the whole body is stained by the tongue. And this word staining literally means to make a spot. And the Jews often used it of a lamb that is blemished, has spots on it. It cannot be used anymore. It's often used in a negative way, which means it is no longer pure. It has been compromised. That is the most common way that this, the, the, this word is used. But it can also be used of moral compromise, meaning that that guy, he's just soiled. He's, he's, he's wicked beyond wicked. He's stained His whole life by means of his character. Now, the way that James uses it is to indicate that spots are not a secret. It's pretty obvious, right? The tongue is put in place to stain the body. Staining the body. So, the tongue is put in place to do something to the body. I'm going to say it this way. God places the tongue in the body, to reveal either the immorality or sinfulness of the, the heart or to mock the individual. I lean to the latter. What James is after is showing the capacity of the tongue to put a big red X on you. Now, I'll explain that, how it works. How does the tongue stain the body? <clears throat> Notice that it says the whole person. Look at the text. It says, And the tongue uh, is set on fire. Uh, a world of, uh, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our, among our members, staining the entire body, the whole body. How does the tongue do that? We are not cats. A cat can lick most of his body. I've seen that disgusting act. He gets almost right up to the back of his neck. The only thing he cannot (laughs) lick is the top of his head. But a a, a a cat can lick almost every part of his body. How does the tongue stain the whole body? Well, think about it. It is not like the tongue causes moral failure, and that is often how it is taken. It's not causative. It is not like the tongue can cause us to sin because the tongue merely reveals sin. Jesus says that as well. But the tongue reveals the moral compromise that is already present. Remember what I said? The tongue is like a big red X that stains you and marks you. The tongue tells us exactly what kind of people we are. And that is the staining power of the tongue. It marks the person. It defines the person. It reveals the kind of spots that that person has. It identifies your true nature. Don't think contamination, because often that is the view. But rather think marking out. You are Put on display because the tongue has stained your outward appearance. Let me put it this way. Those who talk behind people's backs are called what? Gossipers? No. Gossips. Not gossipers call. what? what? That's not a word. Gossips. Those who sow discord are called what? Discorders. Troublemakers, for lack of a better word. Those who do not tell the truth are called liars. That's an easy one. You are stained by the sin you perform. The tongue marks you out as a liar, as one who sows discord. A guy who is a prideful or a lady that is boastful, what what does the tongue say about them? It stains them as a person who is that prideful or boastful. The tongue not only reveals the true nature of the heart, but marks the person for who they are. Stains the entire reputation, character of that individual. The entire person gets the stain of a liar. Not just the fact that his tongue lied. He is called a liar. That is what James is after. The tongue has the power to mark you out for the sin that you commit. The tongue is revelatory in nature. Imagine that you are caught in a lie. Imagine that embarrassment, right? It's not nice. That's not a nice feeling. Often when we think about the effect of the tongue, it's inward. Well, James says your entire person is compromised. People look at you, not just at the lie, at you and say, don't trust that guy. He says one thing, but he does another thing. He never keeps his word. Hang on, it was only one time. doesn't matter. Your entire world has been stained by that one lie. That's how the tongue stains us. It marks us out and it shows us who we truly are. We don't want to acknowledge it, but it does. In other words, this is what James is saying. The tongue has been given to be the revealer of the stain that is already present. The tongue marks your lie. The tongue marks your pride. The tongue marks your boastfulness. The tongue marks your Gossiping. Jesus does the same thing in Mark, I'm not going to go to it, 7 14 to 23, where he says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the tongue speaks. For out of the heart comes boastful things, evil thoughts. Notice what he says evil thoughts come from the heart, but it is revealed on the tongue. Now, James is not giving us an excuse but showing the shocking reality of the revelatory nature of the tongue that we do not want to acknowledge about ourselves. If there are hurtful words on your tongue, what does it say about you? You, Your intent is to hurt that person. And often in marriage, when words slip, what do we say? I didn't mean to say that. I am so sorry. No, you're not. The reason you said it is because you wanted to say it, yet it stained you. It marked you. It's like a big red rubber stamp saying, hurtful person. Liars are liars, stained. Immoral conversation comes from an immoral heart, stained. Prideful speech seeps out of a prideful heart, stained. Slander, gossip, angry words comes from the person, uh, from a heart that has those elements in the person stained. The tongue reveals that stain, and so it marks you. The sad reality is that even after a person is saved, even after you may have come to saving faith and Maybe early in his life he said something that he regrets and he's repented of, but he's not like that anymore. That stain sometimes remains. People will look back at that and say, you know what? You're that kind of person. Now we do need to forgive, but unfortunately, we are not like God that can forgive, removing the East, removing our sins from us as the East, as far as the East is from the West. We hold on. We remember. We hold on to those kind of things and we mark that person as if they've committed that sin today. Your character and testimony, unfortunately, is marred by that use of the tongue. And people will hang it over you. And that is wrong. They should not because as God sanctifies you, 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 you use your tongue better. But unfortunately, we are sinners saved by grace. God has given each person a tongue and this organ best defines or shows who we truly are. I don't know about you, but these last few sermons have been really convicting to my heart. It's been painful to, to preach through this because I can see my own heart being revealed in this. So not only is the tongue given to us to stay in us, but also the tongue is given to set on fire the entire course of one's life. This is a little bit more difficult, but also a little bit more shocking. Look at the next phrase in um, the next clause in the sentence. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life. Um, did I say clause? It's actually uh, a phrase. The second activity is that uh, James describes is that the tongue sets on fire the entire course of human life. Now, it is a little bit more difficult to explain. There's a lot of different nuances. So I'm going to do my best to explain it the best way that I understand it. Now, the words course of life literally means the wheel of existence. Well, that helps, not (laughs) the wheel of existence. Or the wheel of origin, or better yet, the wheel of his genesis. None of that explains what it means. It's just descriptive terms. There is really no English equivalent for that. The word origin or Genesis is used in chapter 1 verse 23 where James says that he looks at his Genesis in the mirror. He looks at this whole person and sees himself for who he truly is. He sees his mug and he sees that his face is made of mud and he walks away thinking, oh I look good when in fact he's got a mud pie for a face. And James says, no, if you look at yourself and you don't see that ugly mug, there's something wrong with you. Yeah, the word used in James chapter one twenty-three speaks of a holistic vision of himself. He sees himself for who, he's true, for who he truly is and walks away still thinking good about himself. He looks into the law and the law reveals his sinfulness and he still walks away thinking good about himself. It is used in the same way. Similarly here though, James says, not the beginning of his life, but he looks, uh, um, the the entire genesis, the the holistic revelation of his entire life is put on display. Everything that relates to the changes of his life, the vicissitudes of his existence. Not just his face, but everything that relates to that existence is set ablaze by the tongue. Let me break it down even more. Every person and every avenue of your life is burned by your tongue. In other words, the tongue has far-reaching implications. It does not just stay in you, but affects everyone in your circle of existence. We call it our circle of influence. Our circumference of life. This means all that is contained in our lives, all that is connected to us, can be affected by our Tongue. I think that is pretty obvious. Staining the whole body and setting on fire the entire course of that individual's life. He's not talking about burning down the entire world. He says no, the tongue has the capacity the capacity to burn down everything and everyone in your life, everyone that relates to your existence. Think about it this way. Let me illustrate it. If a father makes a bad decision for the household, who's affected? The entire household. Not just him. Everyone. The entire scope of his existence in that house gets affected. When a person lashes out and is amongst his closest allies or friends, who's affected? Everyone that hears that lashing out. You get the point. Now think about it in the context of teaching. Because that is the context here. When words are used incorrectly. When the position is abused. When teachers lie or teachers manipulate the text. Or teachers try to manipulate their audience who's affected. Not just him, but everyone under his um, scope of existence. Under his authority. It sets ablaze everyone. That is, in his will of existence. In other words, everyone that is related to him in the capacity of his ability to speak, the use of his tongue, is affected by the flame on the tongue. That is hard to live down. If you are in a family, a microcosm of the world, when you hurt people in that family, the hurt lingers long. You know that when brothers and sisters fight and it becomes personal. I'm not talking about 13 and below, because 13 and below, they forgive very easily. But the minute they reach puberty, it becomes personal. You've hurt me personally, and I'll never forgive you. Sometimes it can go on for decades that they do not resolve the situation. We see this happen quite a lot, where an entire uh, the, the person's entire world is burned down by a word spoken out of ten. More so now, more so now than before, because I heard that um, this is off the sermon. I'm I'm, I'm wondering that companies now uh, look at your social media posts to determine if you are fit for a company. So if you posted back there maybe five years ago that you think that global warming is a farce, and you're going to work for Cecil. They might hire you. It's the saying. But if you say that global warming is a danger to everybody and petrol companies need to stop existing, guess what? They're not going to, fire you. I'm going to hire you. They don't want somebody like that, so they check you out. That word spoken burns the entire scope of your life. You will never be able to work in that environment again, unless you delete the post, of course. Let me bring it back to the context here. This is often uh, taken to mean that the tongue is an aggressive fire in and of itself. But notice what it says. The tongue is set in place. That is the governing phrase. The tongue is set in place. I meant clause because there's a subject there. The, the, the tongue is set in place among our members. So then the causative, the net result of that, this, what, what reveals this, the function of the, the setting in place are these three things. The staining and the sitting on fire. So then God gives the tongue Why? To set, to burn our whole worlds down? No. God gives the tongue to, reveals, to reveal the damaging effect that we have on our wheel of existence. The damaging effect that we have to those whom we should love the most. The tongue demonstrates how little regard we have for those in our lives when we burn them down. The tense of this verb, verbal force here is actually that it's a habitual practice. It happens often, frequently. The tongue is given to reveal the devastating consequences of how it's being used, which happens more often than not. I remember reading that a young lady, uh, it was in the States uh, probably about a year ago, she... Um, she was accused of saying something that she didn't and another lady accused her of saying um, that you would make a good speed bump i don't know if you know the story and that went quote unquote viral. she got released from her studies she cannot she was studying law cannot find a job as a lawyer it burned her entire existence down. Now this lady didn't know her. Didn't know her personally. But it, the light spread like wildfire. It only came out later that she didn't actually say it. When a tongue runs unchecked, when a tongue is uncontrolled, it can damage and destroy people's lives. James says, look at your tongue. Look at your tongue. It not only stains yourself, but it can influence and affect a lot of people. Notice that it doesn't say, burns your life down, but the wheel of your existence down, everybody that's connected to you, gets affected by how you use your tongue. So the tongue Mm -hmm. is given to show the stain, The tongue is given to reveal the self-destructing activity that uh, uh, um, is caused. But also the tongue is fueled by hell itself. This is probably the most difficult to understand. And I'm going to take some time, the rest of my time, to explain this. What does it mean when he says the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course, the entire wheel of his existence, and set on fire by hell? That sounds very harsh. What is important is that James returns to the analogy of fire. Set on fire by hell. Two words that relates to flame, hell and fire. Obviously, James wants him to think about the consequences of fire in a person's life. So that is the big picture understanding of it. Now this has been and is often understood as eschatological hell, a future hell that is to come. Or metaphorically of every cosmic evil that lies behind the tongue. So it is either the future hell that God will throw the devil and his angels in, or the cosmic evil forces that is behind the tongue. One person says it this way, quote, James is saying that the destructive forces of evil speaking is equal to the destructive forces of hell. Hmm. End quote. I don't know about that. Is James actually speaking about eschatological hell or evil forces behind the word hell? Let me pose the problem this way. If, The forces of evil are behind the use of your tongue. Who's to blame? Not you, though. Because then you are merely doing what the devil wants you to do, right? Then you could say, "Were that old Christian singer, the devil made me do It wasn't me. The demons made me say that word. I didn't say it. It's because the hell is behind my usage of my tongue. That's a quick excuse for anybody who burns down the entire existence of his world. Secondly, is James actually thinking about the future dwelling place of the devil? Well, if it's future, then can he say that this is presently influencing our tongue? Good question. Thirdly, it is a word picture. And a word picture gives us a holistic view of the main point. Now, with word pictures, there's generally historical or geographical affiliation to it. And he's been using word pictures all the time. The felt fire, setting ablaze um, uh, a small, a large fire. It's a word picture that they can relate to as they think about their environmental context. We can't because we didn't live where they lived. The same is true of this. So let me fill in that historical background Because we don't possess it as we think about this use of this word hell. Now most of us may be thinking or looking at our uh, footnotes and think hell as in the place of punishment. That may not be what James is after. This word in English hell comes from the Greek word Gehenna. I'm going to use three Greek words to explain why I don't think James is using future hell. This word is Gehenna. It appears often in the Gospel on the on the lips of Jesus to speak as an analogy of a future place that is known as the Lake of Fire, a place of torment. There is also two other place, uh, two other words that is used of hell, Tartarus, uh, Tartaro, depending on the translation, and both can be translated hell and is often translated hell turn over to 2nd Peter chapter 2 verse 4 and I'll show the difference between the two 2nd Peter chapter 2 verse 4 for if God did not spare angels when they sinned but cast them into Tataro, hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness, which is that hell, to be kept until the judgment. So there's a future judgment. And if you read Revelation, they get taken and get thrown into the what? Lake of fire. That is also called hell. So what on earth is happening here? Well, in the English translation, it is just called hell. But it's different places. This place, the title, is the place of fallen angels. Not the place where humans go. Then turn over to Revelation chapter 20. (coughs) Look at verse 14, I believe. Revelation 20, verse 14, yes. Then death and Hades, translated as Hades, we're thrown into the lake of fire, and some of your translations will say hell. This is the second death, the lake of fire. The word here, hades, is often in the Gospels translated as, you guessed it, hell. Hades is the realm of the dead, the unbelieving dead. So you've got fallen angels and unbelieving dead Both of them will be taken and thrown into the lake of fire, which is the final punishment, also known as eschatological hell. I don't believe that James has that hell or any of those three places in view. They they don't fit the context, because if you take, number one, the fallen place of angels, uh, how is that behind the demonic world? How is that behind the tongue? If it is your excuse for using your tongue in an evil way, how is the realm of the dead behind your use of the tongue? Does not make sense. So then what is this place called Gehenna? Go back to James. Um, Actually, don't go back to James. I'll give you another passage to go to in a moment. The word Gehenna has historical significance attached to it. And I believe this is what James has in view. While Jesus uses it as a word picture to speak of eternal flames that were still to come, it was something that they could see and relate to. So a place that was known to them, this Gehenna is known as a the Valley of Hinnom, which for those of you who have been to Jerusalem, La is a ravine lying south, uh, south southwest of uh, Jerusalem. It is known as the place of judgment to torment, uh, named by Jesus as a future place. Matthew twenty three fifteen. You can look at that. This place was edged into the minds of the Jews, however, as the most horrendous and hideous of places in all of Jerusalem. Why? Its geographical location is often equal to, in the minds of the Jews, as Auschwitz is today. So obviously not a very nice place. It has a negative connotation. Joshua chapter 15. Let's fill in the historical background. This goes beyond the context of the passage, but I, I, I love history, and so understanding this history will help us understand the, the sense behind this word a little bit better. Joshua chapter 15, look at verse 8. Then the boundary, and this is Judah being given their um, regional allotment, and part of that area is this. Then the boundary goes up by the valley of the son of Hinnom, at the south, southern shoulder of the Jebusite that is Jerusalem. So right on the border uh, um, um, uh, tangent to, to Jerusalem lies this place called the Valley of Enam In Greek, Gehenna. Same place. Now turn over to 2 Kings, chapter 23. Now in Joshua... If you read further, you will find that the Judites did not remove the descendants of Canaan, which was also known as the Jebusites, but they lived among them. And as a net result of that, some measure of cultural appropriation took place. They started doing what the Jebusites did, what the Canaanites did. And more and more, as they lived amongst these Canaanites, more and more the Jews started adopting the cults, cult practices of these um, Jebusites or Canaanites. Look at 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 10. You may know that this is the reform under Josiah. Look at what he had to do. And he, this is Josiah, defiled. Topheth. What is Topheth? It's explained for us, which is the valley of the son of Hinnom, in Greek, Gehenna, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. Wow. Gehenna was originally a place where they uh, made this bull thing that uh, had flames in his arms, and on the arms they would place their sons and daughters as an offering to this cult um, sorry, to this demon god, which is um, Molech. Note the connection. They would burn their sons and daughters on the fires of Molech. This place, Tapheth is exactly the same geographic location as Gehenna. You think that there's uh, significance? What did it start out as? A cultic place that revolved around what? Fire. Fire. A burning place. Child sacrifice by means of fire. And this unending flame that burnt on the arms of Molech, this demon god, or whatever they they called it, received the offering of the individual, which was a child. He burnt his entire heritage down. Doesn't that sound familiar? Burning down your will of existence burning down your future lineage. It is consumed by the arms of Gehenna, or the arms of of Molech. By the time of Jesus, this same place was defiled to such a degree that it became a rubbish dump. They would never um, use it again for that cult practice. And I believe uh, um, Josiah uh, started that Uh, defiling and he defiled it to such a degree that they would never resurrect this horrendous cult it is so it is such a repulsive area that the jews throw their dead carcasses and rubbish and things that would otherwise contaminate the rest of jerusalem would be thrown there as a result of that you would have the rotting carcasses of animals, which causes um, maggots, which is like the worst worm that God has ever created. Have you seen those things move? It freaks you out. I run the other way when I don't run for anything, but a maggot scares me. Anyway, it is, as a result of that, you have decaying flesh and you've got this overabundance of maggots. Why does it sound familiar? Does Jesus not mention a place where the maggot does not um, decay? Where the rot does not go away? That is not a future hell. He's talking about this place, Gehenna, which is a future vision. It's It's an image, a visual image of the horrendous nature of this place that is to come, which is known as the lake of fire. This place, Gehenna, is used by both Jesus and James because they lived close to it. They knew it. It was right in the, the, the tippy-top of their tongues and their minds because it was seared into their psyche, for lack of a better word. They knew exactly of the horror of Gehenna, the, sun, uh, the valley of the sons of Hinnom. And so James uses it as a visual image of putrefaction, decay, stench, maggots, rot, and idolatry. This is the image behind the word hell. So let's take that. Go back to James. The tongue is set among our members, standing the whole body, set on fire, uh, setting on fire the entire existence of an individual's life. And is set on, high, uh, on fire by Gehenna. That's a play on words. A flame. It's set on fire by an area that is despicable. In other words, your tongue is motivated, driven by a disgusting, repulsive source. What is James after? The source of the wicked um, use of the tongue is not a good place. That's all that he means. He's not thinking of eschatological hell. He's using a visual image, a place that they can actually relate to, that they can walk to. It's in walking distance of of Jerusalem. And he says, you remember that place, Gehenna? That is equal to the horrendous stench and putrefaction that is taking place in your hearts. The source is wicked. That's what he's after. James is pointing to the real reason why we burn down the entire existence of our lives. Why we stain ourselves by the constant misuse of the tongue. Because behind the tongue is a world that is repulsive. The source of the tongue is wicked, evil, despicable and repugnant. The tongue is dangerous because it is no different to to the toxic, demon-pleasing, decaying actions of depravity. In other words, your tongue is a perfect representation of the sinful world that dominates your heart. (coughs) It's an over-exaggeration. It's a, a visual image to stimulate the senses to the nth degree, to make them hurl at it, to make them gag at the thought of it. It's to overwhelm the senses. And he's done this before. God, um, James uses uh, her, a hyperbole. I always want to use an N with an H. A hyperbole uh, to exaggerate the wickedness of the source of the tongue. He's after source. Keep that in mind. He's after what causes the weaker display of the tongue. Now, look down in James chapter 3 at verse 11. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Water, what is he saying? Follow the source. If the net result, if the outworking of the fountain is brackish water, what is in the heart? What is the source looking like? If the tree is bearing uh, forth, forth um, wild olives, what is the heart like? It's not good. That's the whole point he's making, is that the source of the tongue has been compromised. In other words, you don't belong in the position of teaching because your heart has been compromised and your tongue demonstrates that reality. What lies behind the tongue? A putrid world that is a stench to us and God. James is saying that the cause and the source of the fountain or the fiery display of the tongue is the furnace that is depraved by its wickedness. The reason why you burn down your family, your loved ones, those whom you should care most about is because your heart is not right with God. You have a stinking, decomposing, rotten, dirty Scoundrel, I think it's called Dirty the Rotten. What is that movie? In your mouth. (coughs) That's the problem. The depth of your heart will be made manifest on the use of your tongue. So James says, not many of you should become teachers because you do not know what you have in your mouth you will damage a lot of people if your heart is not changed. Let's pray. Father, we want to say with the words of David, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. Even as believers, Lord, we... We use thoughtless words. We say things that hurt those people most closest to us. We ask that you would not only forgive us, but grant us the grace to ask forgiveness of those whom we have hurt. Help us to rectify the way that we speak. Grant us a heart that meditates on your word so that our tongues may demonstrate Lives that have been changed by your grace. Father, we pray these things as we are so desperately needy. We need you to help us. We need you to change us. We pray that your words, your word would continue to mature us, sanctify us, that you may be glorified in how we live and how we use our tongues. For your glory we pray. Amen.